Australian golf legend and President's Cup champion, Greg Norman. I wanted to prove me right and everybody else wrong because there were a lot of doubters out there thinking that I wouldn't be able to do it. Nicknamed the Great White Shark, he was known both for his aggressive style and as one of the best long drivers in the sport's history. He also gained a reputation for letting leads slip away during major play. Post-career, Norman remains as active as ever with his Great White Shark brand, tackling everything from clothing and wine to real estate and golf course design. I was starting to realize that I was putting a lot of value and equity in other people's brand, but I really didn't get anything out of it except dollars. Like, great, that, that's what you want. I didn't want that. Norman opens up about the personal cost of his dedication to the sport. I've paid the ultimate sacrifice, quite honestly. Why do you say that? Well, because you know, your family's not together. He also remembers one of his best daredevil stunts and his initial hesitation to hit the links with President Clinton. And we're playing golf, shooting the breeze, you know, just like you would any other thing. And Air Force One is still sitting there and Hillary's ready to go and we just keep going. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Uh, I was talking to your uh, team before the, the interview and was telling them just how impressive I think the property you have is out there in uh, Colorado. H how many acres do you have? Just under 13,000 acres. Um, lucky enough to have about two and a half miles of the White River flowing through it and magnificent you know, fly fishing. Um, I spent basically three summers many years ago redoing the river, not the entire river, um, probably 50, just over 50% of the river, bringing it back to its most natural state. We got rid of a lot of the sedimentation buildup. It used to be a sheep farm before me, before um, I bought it, and the sheep came down and just basically eroded the river banks and you know silted it up where instead of being three or four or five feet deep in places, it was like 18 inches. So you had and, to, and that was a big process too. You had to go uh, get approval to do it. You have to get it approval to do it. It's a major process. You have to have, to have um, accredited individuals doing it. They're monitoring you all the time, and rightfully so too, because the White River is basically the headwaters of the Colorado. So um, you, know, you have the North Fork, South Fork coming out of the mountain springs and rivers, coming into the White River that goes into the Colorado River. So. Um, yeah, we're responsible. I mean, my water rights are uh, grandfathered in, so I've got to be responsible for everybody downstream of me. So at the end of the day, it was a, it was a fantastic uh, project for me because I learned so much about it. And, and even now, this, this summer, or coming into this spring, we have a, a big maintenance project because I have seven big lakes on the property as well, and they're all spring-fed, so I have to make sure those lakes and the beavers don't ruin the dams and you know um, upset any other flow of water down downstream so it's it you know it's an interesting because i've had this property for so long i really haven't been aware of the magnitude and the beauty of it and really and, no not really because i just would fly in and fly out and you'd have everybody else for example i run my own bulldozers I run my own uh, road maintainer. I'll do, we have 91 miles of road on there. And what I is have, it called, motor grader? Uh, yeah, it's so? a motor grader, yeah, okay. like it's a maintainer we call it, where you grade, pre grade the roads before you put on um, asphalt or something like that. So I run that piece of equipment and I love it. I mean, I could be out there for 10 days straight, just going along at two mile an hour, just grading the roads and getting them ready for the summer and people getting around. And, and uh, you know, my dozer, you know, I'll, 
I'll clear a path if I need to clear a path and make a little mini ski run for uh, Kiki's girls, and I love doing that. What, what else do you like doing on the property? I, I'm very big into um, long-range shooting. Um, I mean, I have a 1,400-yard range out there. I, have, uh, I like to test my skills on that type of deal. I have, um, you know, I have a couple of sniper rifles that are magnificent to shoot out that far. And, and then I have a really short pistol range course. I have a sporting clays range course that um, all my guests love to, to do. So I have a, a lot to do, uh, or I can just do absolutely nothing. Um, it's really up to me and the choice that I want, and most of the time, I'm active. How big are you into offshore fishing? I was big time into it. I would go down to Australia about every other year and, and fish for black marlin. I've um, done a lot of blue marlin fishing. Um, you know, so I've been a pelagic guy. I got into fly fishing for the pelagics, you know, the big fish. Um, fortunate enough to caught about 390 pound black marlin on a fly, uh, which was maybe my favorite fish you've ever caught. Um, but Why? Yeah, uh, because you, it's a really the skill between the captain and the angler. Um, it's how we hook up the fish and where we position the line and the hook and how the captain keeps the belly of the line as the drag, because you really can't put a lot of load on the fish, and you're in, you could be in you know, two, three, four meter seas catching this fish. And uh, so it's really the art of the angler knowing what the captain's doing with the boat and how you position your rod and how you position yourself. And, and uh, you know, it can be up to a couple of hours um, doing that. So my second favorite fish you ever caught was, um, I was diving with great white sharks and, um, they wanted me to catch one, we were going to tag and release it, we weren't going to kill the fish. And uh, we got into this massive fight, and I was on 50 pound stand-up tackle on a, the fish they estimated was um, over 2,000 pound. It was a massive, massive great white. And that was like four, four and a half, 445 hours stand-up fighting this massive beast that pulled the boat, I think, something like nine and a half miles, something like that. And so what's your involvement in that when it's going on? Hang on. Okay. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was just hang on situation and you, you get into this, you know, like any, any athlete, once you get into a certain place, you get in this zen place. And um, at the end of the day, the fish swam away. I was very happy. Um, you know, the fish really tested me out. and. I, when it was all over and done with, I fell on the floor and I was just done, exhausted. I actually had to play a skins game. Two days later, I couldn't move my arms. Oh, my you legs, my, everything was just shot, <laughs> it was done. So, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, it was a great test for me mentally as well as physically. And um, so that would be my second greatest catch. And both fish survived too, which was great. I want to uh, run through some random moments and get you to uh, recall the stories because, you know, very clearly it seems like you've had fun. Um, when you were in Turks and Caicos uh, <laughs> and you're on your boat, uh, you know, and headed towards Cuba and or in the general direction of Cuba and what happens? There was one atoll I've always wanted to either go dive or fish. A few of the guys wanted to join me, but it was a 4 a.m. push off, you know, because we wanted to get there at daybreak and do some fishing and maybe dive on the atoll, which was completely infested with sharks. But um, so anyway, we take off and my sport fishing boat's a pretty quick boat. It does about 33 knots. And um, when you're doing 33 knots heading towards Cuba, you know, radars pick things up a little bit and there's a big red blob put right on top of you. So I, you know, I'm watching it, watching it. Next minute the radio crackles. 
on uh, Channel 16. And, and it says, you know, such such vessel heading southwest at 33 knots, please identify yourself. So I identify myself, hey, um, this is vessel Aussie Rules, and it's owned by Greg Norman. And they said, who's captaining the vessel? I said, I am, my name is Greg Norman. And they said, is this the Greg Norman, the wine guy? I went, yes, I made it. My life has changed for the better. <laughs> so that was a story, no harm foul, no foul given, no, uh, no foul intended. And, uh, so we continued on with our trip, and that was it. You're being chased by the Florida Highway Patrol for 20 miles down the highway going <laughs> 120 miles per hour in your Ferrari. With my buddy Nigel Mansell. He was a, he was a Formula One um, world champion. Yeah, that was, that was one of the crazy things. All you children out there don't even think about doing that. That's no, no. But anyway, um, we were going down to pick up my car that had just arrived, and it was a Testarossa. And, um, and I, obviously, I drove it back, and Nigel drove another car of mine, and uh, he started showing off his Formula One skills, I guess, and all of a sudden, out we were doing this ridiculous speed on 95, and and it took the police a long time to catch up to us, pull us over. Um, and, and you could see the police oh, gosh, trailing yeah. you. And well, you I, guys not, just kept not, going. Well, not at the end, not okay. not in the beginning. It was only at the end okay. because you're concentrating so much on what you're okay. doing, right? You didn't want to make a mistake, and so you're oblivious to anything mm -hmm. else going on. So by the time they caught up, by the time he caught up and got us, you know, he came to me and we had a little chat and. And uh, he was going to give me a ticket, and I said, hey, if you're going to give me a ticket, you've got to go out there and give that guy a ticket too, because he, I was racing him. Nice guy, me, huh? Dob my friend in. So anyway, we were lucky. You didn't get a ticket? No, we didn't get a ticket. We were very lucky. We got a warning, of wrap across the knuckles. He had a look at the car, and I uh, was very impressed with the car. It was one of the first few that had come into the country, and, and that was it. You're 88 feet under the water scuba diving. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you're out of air. Man, you got all the good stories, right? Yes, um, I was. I was scuba. I just uh, speared a, a group of maybe 10 or 15 minutes earlier. And to get it out of the hole, I actually went into this hole in the, in the coral rock. And I, unbeknownst to me, my regulator hose got nicked right on the uh, where it joins into the regulator. And I was leaking air. Anyway, I came out, I got the fish, boom, 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 and uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, I could, you know, if you ever try to put your hand over your mouth and breathe in, that's exactly it. You, you feel it first, and then, and then there's nothing. So it's really a, a panicky feeling, to tell you the truth, because the first thing I did was I checked my gauge, I saw where my buddy was. My buddy was probably 30 feet from me, which uh, I assessed, 88 feet, 30 feet, I knew with what air I had in my lungs, it would expand as I went up. Um, so I decided to go for the surface and not for my buddy. Which is very dangerous to ascend that quickly. It is, you have to be very controlled of where you are, um, you know, because I knew I didn't have any much air left in my lungs. Um, so what I did was I put my hand on my regulator, on my BC, and um, you know, tried to have it inflate as much as it could going up. and. The last 10 or 15 feet before the surface broke, I was, I was done. And I got, I got the bends a little bit. There's no question about it, because I came up a little bit too quick in the last 45 feet. Did you think that was it? Once I got there, I was going to be fine. Okay. It was just a matter of whether I blacked out getting there, and they would recognize it from the boat. So, okay. uh, 
But it was, that was an interesting experience. Tell about your 30-30-30-10 strategy. Well, I learned that when I was a kid um, as an assistant pro at Royal Queensland Golf Club and I was making $27 a week was my first salary. And then I moved up to a whopping $32 a week. Um, so that's not a whole lot of money to, to play with. So I decided to do that strategy then. And I've always had a little bit of money and a little bit of money when you break it down. And, and I kept that going forward my whole life. Even when uh, I won my first golf tournament, the West Lakes Classic, I won $7,000. I thought I was the richest guy in the world. And, and I took that philosophy and I broke it down. And you had to pay taxes and you had my expenses, you know, and, and my cost of living. And, and then I had, uh, at the end of it, that 10%, $700 was my little slush fund that I could go out there and say, congratulations, Greg, you, did, you just won your first golf tournament. I didn't, but I had that opportunity to go do it. So uh, I kept that. Even to this day, I've taught my kids to do that. You were repped by the you know famous sports management firm, uh, you know IMG, which you know has represented everybody from Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer to Peyton Manning to Roger Federer, uh, you know you name it. Um, tell about uh, you know the the plan you created in 1993, and then why uh, on the business end, and why you really accelerated that. Pure and simple. When you're an athlete growing up and you get to a certain level, um, and there's very few athletes get to experience this, because I would say the top 10 maybe in the world uh, get to experience it, where you actually get a significant uptick in your endorsement. Um, and during that time where I was getting a significant uptick in my endorsements when I was under a management firm, I was starting to realize that I was putting a lot of value and equity in other people's brand for a reason. They were paying me, I was wearing their logo, blah, 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 and they were getting great exposure because I was playing pretty darn good golf and I was on TV X number of seconds per day or minutes per day. Um, so they spent all this money on you to get this exposure because you're on the golf course, but I really didn't get anything out of it except dollars. Like, great, that, that's what you want. I didn't want that. I wanted to build equity in my own brand. So how do you build equity in a brand when you don't even have a brand? Um, then lo and behold, comes uh, Reebok comes along and they want to start Greg Norman Collection Clothing. We formulate the Shark logo. One thing leads to another. Paul Feynman, who owned Reebok at the time, he says, that is your property. You own that logo. I'm going to license that off you. And you're going to, you're going to go and build that into your future. This is your equity, and you're going to put value in your own equity. So that's how it all started. So when my contract with my management company was coming up, um, 1992, 93, I decided not to renew. And at that moment, I had to step out. And I had to capitalize everything myself. And now you better be a believer in yourself. Once you open that door, you better, that cash is going out, you better stab yourself pretty darn quickly to get some cash coming in. Um, so I did. One of your first big deals was investing $2 million in golf club manufacturer Cobra. Mm -hmm. um, how did the deal come about and how well did it end up working out for you? Well, it worked out fantastic, but before we get to the fantastic side, um, I had befriended a gentleman from Australia called Tom Crow. Uh, 
Tom Crow was kind of like the patriarch of our golf uh, from our country. He, he was just uh, passionate about the game and passionate about designing golf clubs. Um, I think it was like the 87, 86, 87, Tom came to me and asked me if I would like to invest into his company. And his company at that time was doing about $43 million a year gross revenue. But they didn't have enough capital to invest into research and development. Um, and part of the stipulation was uh, I wanted the money to, as I said, go into research and development. Now at that time, there was a unique opportunity because Callaway just came out with the big Bertha driver, the oversized driver. But they weren't following it up with the oversized irons. So we looked at this opportunity. If we can come up with a great oversized iron, let's go to market with it straight away. We did. And we came up with the King um, Cobra oversized irons, not just for the general public, but for the seniors and the ladies. And it was a massive hit. So good luck, good judgment, right money at the right time, combination of everything, it just took the company to another level. All of a sudden we had this huge, huge momentum going our way and I was playing well and I was number one player in the world and you know, all of a sudden Cobra was like the name. King Cobra was the name, it was out there. And, and then we were eventually acquired by another company for I think 750 plus million dollars. So we actually, we all did pretty good out of it. How, how much did the couple million bucks tr translate to? Wasn't it like some 40 million? Yeah, or some, 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 and then you used that. that to then invest into yeah. the, the business that you were in the process of build, building, building for up, building up. yourself? My, I reinvested the money. Right. Um, and it may obviously took, takes a lot of pressure off too. Right. Um, but at the same time, um, in those days, it was a massive deal. I mean, it was a massive deal to see a company that Tom Crow had started with one golf club turn up, you know, just three quarters of a billion dollars in a period of maybe less than 10 years. So it was an eye-opener for all the other manufacturers, which was fantastic because at the end of the day, the consumer are the benefactors. I want to take you back to when you were growing up. You grew up in Australia. Uh, you played just about every other sport, it seemed like, growing up except golf. And mm -hmm. then you're 16 years old for the first time you're you decide to caddy for your mom. And what was it about caddying for her that all of a sudden got you so interested in the game? Well, the fact that my father had uh, changed jobs. He had gone from a town up in the northeastern part of Queensland called Townsville and moved down to Brisbane, which is like you know, 600 miles away. Um, so I left all my mates behind at the age of 15, 16, you know, all the guys you hung out with when you're knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, so I was down in Brisbane, had nothing to do, and I was actually kind of bored, and my mum was playing a competition one day, and I said, I'll come out and caddy for you, and the bug bit me. And my first handicap was 27. Uh, my first official score was 108, and I got down from 27 handicap to scratch in 18 months, so everything happened very, very fast. How much did you start practicing after that initial time caddying? Oh, all the time, before okay. school, after school. I used to have a code with mom that, you know, I'd call to come pick me up, um, three rings on the phone, I'd hang up, it's time for you to come get me and take me to school, or 
come get me when it's pitch black and I can't see a golf ball when I'm hitting it anymore. She'd come pick me and have dinner. So I was really passionate about it. It had been a dream of yours, as you mentioned, to join the Royal Australian Air Force. And you're in their office with your dad, getting ready to sign papers, committing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you have a change in heart. Why? I don't know why. I think deep down inside, something told me don't do it. Deep down inside, something was saying to me, you know, I was in love with the game of golf. Challenge yourself and, and try and see if you can figure figure out what it is. I don't know what it was. I, all I know is I got up and and I walked away from a career. My father wasn't impressed because he didn't know whether I'd be any good at the game of golf. Nobody right. did. Nobody did. And. Uh, so I knew I was walking away from a career that was there sitting in front of me. Um, but anyway, in, trust your internal instincts sometimes, they're right. You spend a year after high school surfing and you come back from that and tell your parents you want to become a professional golfer. What's their reaction at the time? Well, you know, I would say if I put myself in their shoes today, being a, a parent, if my child came to me saying he wanted he or she wanted to do something that they have never experienced before uh, not a never experienced before but never never knowing that you're going to be any good at it I'd be sitting there with a bit of a dumb look on my face too but I was adamant you know I've, I've always been that nature you know pretty driven guy and um, they just had to accept it uh, they could see my commitment to it was second to none. I was into it more than anybody else at that time, quite honestly. Even when I was out on the tour, I practiced more than anybody else um, because I figured that if somebody was practicing for eight hours and I practiced for ten, I'm going to be that much better than that person. Um, w was it tough to go against your parents then? Look, it, create, it created a riff with my dad and myself. There's no question about it. Uh, my dad was a professional. He owned his own business, and he was hoping I would go into the business uh, you know, and follow in his footsteps, which every father would want. Um, so at the end of the day, we kind of separate a little bit, I think, because um, um, it just created a little bit of tension in there. But now it's totally different. You know, right. I've had my dad sit on a board of a company I owned in Australia. He's a very intelligent guy, and he taught me a lot about business as well, you know, in the latter part, in the last 15, 20 years. So I've learned a lot from him. And, and now it's great because, you know, I explain to him what's going on in my life and business. And, you know, and quite honestly, he invests in a couple of companies I've been involved with. So he's happy. He's getting a good dividend return. <laughs> And you've been open, I mean, gr gr about this growing up, he, he was tough on you. How long did it take uh, for him to tell you that he was proud of you? Look, my father, I think you got to, I truly believe every generation's different on how they express themselves and, and how you express yourselves is um, directly uh, affected by how your parents or that, those parents have expressed themselves onto you. And my father's parents were tough, you know, my grandparents, and they weren't affectionate and they weren't close. Um, that, that doesn't mean to say that was the reason why dad was, you know, had those barriers up all the time, but maybe it was. So you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. The, the environment he grew up in as a child was different than the environment that my children grew up in. Right. And I'm a bit, my father in his 
strange ways of going about it, was really um, a great driver for me at the end of the day because it drove me on to the fear of failure. Because if I failed, not only do I let myself down, but I let my family down. So the fear of failure was a massive driving influence behind me um, because I wanted to prove me right and everybody else wrong because there were a lot of doubters out there thinking that I wouldn't be able to do it. And um, you know, at the end of the day, that fear of failure was probably the, the tip of the spear that drove me the hardest. What do you think is responsible for your success? Um, look, I'm a huge believer in myself. Um, there's nothing that I don't think I can't do. Um, if, if I have questions, I'll go ask. I have, I'm so humbled enough to ask somebody who's way more intelligent than me, what do you think? Uh, give me your assessment. Um, and I've been extremely lucky like that, and I've surrounded myself with some wonderful, wonderful people. I mean, you know, I, I've been very lucky where I can pick up the phone and call the President of the United States or an ex-president and say, how are you feeling? Um, or some of the great CEOs of the world. I've, I've, I've been very lucky like that. And to any young kid out there in any sport in, or in any aspect of life, if you have the, the access and the ability to reach out to somebody who's got 35, 40 years of experience above you, God, you better do it. Because it'll help you um, untap so many unknowns within yourself. And I enjoy doing that now. I don't do a lot, but I'm enjoying working with a couple of guys right now that I really, really enjoy seeing their success just get a little bit better, a little bit better. Maybe just because of one thing I said. And that to me uh, is as rewarding as winning any golf tournament. Your son has said before that when you were playing golf, you could be gone traveling for four weeks straight. You'd come home, immediately spend eight hours practicing, get back to the house, then putt till the sun goes down. How difficult was um, it to be away from the the family like that? Well, it's a huge sacrifice. I mean, one of the, the greatest, I mean, you, you, everybody sees all the great things that happen, but here, okay, on this side, the, the bad things that happen, I mean, I travel 35 to 40 weeks a year, every weekend. So that's 35 to 40 weekends, you're gone from home. So you're gone from seeing your kids playing soccer or football or doing what they love to do. You're gone from their, their, their most important growth cycle in life. Um, so you, you try and immerse yourself into it as much as you can. So when you're home on a Sunday night, you know, you go Monday, Tuesday, and then you're gone again. You, you, you try and get in there as hard as you can, but you, it's very difficult. There's huge sacrifices and, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, in my life, I've paid the ultimate sacrifice, quite honestly. And um, why do you say that? Well, because you know your family's not together. You know, because of the the, the the level of my schedule and the level of commitment and the level of um, uh, dedication I had to the sport, that was number one. And if you put something number one ahead of everything else, something's going to happen, right? And uh, so 
So nowadays, my kids, you know, we talk about it openly. You know, it's it's and it's good to have that conversation because at the end of the day, um, if you are going to choose a career, and that career is going to take you away from your home life, then you have to somehow. If I had to do all over again, I'd have to some. I would redo my schedule, big time. You would. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do, do you think it's possible to have great success professionally and have a great personal life? Uh, the answer to that is yes. I, I do believe that. Um, but I was a global traveler. If you're talking about domestic USA, okay, yes, 100%. If you're talking about a global travel system where you're one week over here, and next week in China, and next week in some, maybe in Japan, and another week somewhere else. It's a massive drain because you are constantly on the move. Um, so, if you, if your choice is your backyard is the world, <laughs> it's going to, it's going to make a big difference on how you approach things. So, but at the end of the day, if I didn't do that, what I did then, my business wouldn't be where it is today. So. For all the things I did for the game of golf, making it priority number one, establishing a certain credibility and benchmark without cheapening my, my logo and my positioning, here I am over here that I have this business where my son-in-law and my daughter work for me and my son works for me and all of a sudden now you've given them an opportunity of doing something that if I did it differently over here, they might be off somewhere else. You won two majors. I think you had the lead in a dozen others going into the last day. And I thought it was interesting. I read a quote you gave somewhere where you said, you believe you would have won more if you weren't so uh, stubborn. <laughs> um, the, the, the 1996 Masters, you have a, a six-shot lead going into the final day. The, it was a foregone conclusion in everybody's mind that you were going to uh, win the night before. Uh, so that you know, Saturday night, you're in the locker room. What are you thinking about? Oh, I was thinking about just getting home and getting something to eat and go to bed. But <laughs> honestly, it was late and the press conference went long and uh, I still had to do some practice. And, um, and I was walking out of the locker room and Peter De Bruyne, a, a British writer, was sitting at the bar on the way out, standing on the corner of the bar. And he, he says to me, not even you can screw this up tomorrow. That was not goodbye, Greg. Good luck tomorrow. He says that comment. I go, I was like, oh, okay. Why would you even say that? You know. As the lead's going away on that final day, um, and ultimately Nick Faldo ends up uh, winning. What, what are you thinking about? Look, I didn't think. I never gave up right to the 15th hole when that chip shot in 15th um, for Eagle didn't go in. That was. That was a tough one because I was still believing that I could, and it was that that position where if I made three and Nick made five, it was a totally different ball game. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you, you're fighting with for, with every bit of intensity you've got in you. You're fighting for it. You're fighting for you. You don't dare admit that things are slipping away to yourself. Uh, you keep grinding. You keep focusing. You keep doing stupid little things yourself. I used to stick my thumb up underneath my rib cage here and just give myself so much pain to focus on the moment instead of not thinking all this other stuff. And that helped? Oh, I used to do that all the time. 
all the time. Little things like that would trigger you to think about stay in the present and forget all the crap that's going through your head. Because if you, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win, right? So uh, I, that was one of the great sayings that I always said to myself walking down a fairway. You've said uh, losing had, you know, that those 96 Masters had more of a positive impact on you than winning could have ever had. In what way? Well, first of all, people um, totally respected the way I dealt with the failure. I still have boxes and boxes of fan mails that people wrote me in my, in my house. Um, but I went to um, Benjamin's school the next day, um, and my, one of my kids was playing soccer. And um, this another parent came up to me and said, I want to tell you, you taught me the greatest lesson in life about how you handle that, now how I can teach my son and how I should conduct myself going forward. And you go sit back and go, wow, that's pretty powerful that I've affected another human being as powerfully as that. But so I said, okay, you did win. You won in life. And the people had more respect for me and the consumers who were going to buy my products looked up to me and say, you know what? This guy's a pretty classy guy. You know, he's, he took it on the chin. I could have not gone into that press conference and walked away in the locker room and said, forget everybody, I'm going to go home and cry. No, i got to take it on the chin. That's the responsibility you put yourself in if you want to be in the arena. If you, if you want to go out there, you've got to accept the, the accolades just as much as accept the, you know, the punch in the stomach or the face or whatever it is you got, that you self-inflict. So you've got to step up to it. You've got to be man enough to do it. And if you don't, shame on you. And I can name quite a few professional golfers today who have run away from that responsibility, which really, really pisses me off because it's, their responsibility is to the game and is to that tournament. Yes, you're good enough to put yourself in a position to do it, but when you pass through, you better leave back behind you some legacies and some pretty powerful stuff for the next generation to be able to say, okay, he did a really good job of playing the game of golf, but he or she did a really good job of instilling certain values for all of us to, to study. What do you think of Tiger as a player and then personally? Personally, I don't know him. Um, you know, even though we live half a mile from each other, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said one word to Tiger Woods in 10 years. Which is well, unusual because president, when you moved president's, to... president's Cup at Royal Melbourne, yeah. um, he probably said four words and that's it. <laughs> you know, which is... Kind of strange, you know. Because, because when you moved to the area, Jack Nicholas yeah. was here, you reached out. Yeah, to me it was my responsibility if I'm going into a person's backyard um, that is a figurehead of the game of golf, I'm going to go knock on his door and say, hey, Jack, I'm here, can you give me some advice on how I can boom, 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 you know. That's what camaraderie and sportsmanship and team spirit's all about. And look, you know, I wasn't, I'm not looking for it, number one, but you know, kind of surprised myself uh, that you know, as close as we live, that you know, and I don't have anything against Tiger Woods. I have, there is a perceived rift between the two of you. Do you know what the kind of genesis of that is? I think that's just the media making it up. Uh, look, at the end of the day, um, like I said, I haven't had a conversation with Tiger Woods to for anybody to 
de predetermined there is a barrier there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm willing to, happy to, you know. And, but if, if that's his choice. You know, right. People have their choice in life. That's, that's it. It's not going to take any skin off of my nose. I'm just going to keep doing my life and enjoying Jupiter Island that I've been here since 1991. Rory McIlroy, <clears throat> uh, what do you think of him? Look, I love his attitude. You know, I love that he says something and realizes he makes a mistake, made a mistake in saying it or the wrong inflection, and he'll come out and apologize. You know, he's a human being, and I love it. I love that where, you know, instead of having your guard up all the time and just not answering the question the right way, and just say the way it is. You know, he's he shows it with his play. He's no, he has no fear. He's going to step up the plate. He makes mistakes. He can call top a three wood. He can take a seven. He can, but you know, at the end of the day, he walks off with that beautiful Irish smile and does the interview and doesn't blame anybody except he may have just had a bad day. You know, and I love that attitude he has. What was it like for you to watch Adam Scott, your fellow Australian? win the Masters to become the first uh, Australian ever to do so, and then to thank you uh, the, the day he won it? Well, I think that was the second time I ever actually had a tear in my eye because of the game of golf. I was so happy yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was so happy for him because, you know, I know what it's like to carry that banner of responsibility for your nation. Um, Charlie Earp, um, my greatest mentor, really, said to me, Greg, when you go out and play, you represent two things. You represent the game of golf and your country. So when you go play and everybody was saying, how come an Australian has never won the Masters in all these decades since the tournament's been in inception? And you go, wow, how come that is not to be? And I came close enough times, right? And everybody says, well, how come the Australians can't win it, right? And then when an Australian does win it, you go, yes, you know, we've checked that box. So, you know, and then it happens to a great mate of mine who, um, you know, fortunately for me, came up through my foundation, and all of a sudden you go, whoa, that's even more of a cooler story. What do you think of the state of the game today? I've never seen the game of golf so healthy on a global front as where it is today. Um, I love it that there are a lot of great players have a chance to win any golf tournament. Uh, major championships, or PJ Tour events, or anywhere you play, you seem there seems to be like it was in the 80s when I had the Ballesteroses, myself, the Faldos, the Prices of the world, the Couples of the world, Jose Maria Lathabel, Ian Woosnam, Sandy Lyle. Every week, no matter where we were, we knew we were up against three or four other guys that could just take you to lunch and just spit you out, right? So you always had to be on your game. You always had to focus. You always had to be ready for it because I love that, going there. Now the game of golf is about where it was in the 80s. So no matter where you are in the United States, you're going to go up against the Roy McIlroy's, the Henrik Stenson's, and, and the, the Tiger Woods's of the world, and the uh, Jordan Spieth's of the world. And you, know, you can go down the list, the Patrick Reed. You know, all of a sudden, this, this base is spreading out. And that's why I think golf is so healthy. And it's going to be great for television. It's going to be great for corporate and it's going to be great for growing the game of golf. How many presidents have you golfed with? Hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, three. Three. 
both both Bushes and uh, Clinton. You tell about when the White House called when President Clinton was in office. Yes, that was um, that was his first term in office, and the President was going to go down to Australia to do have his first presidential visit there. And it just happened to be the week of the Australian Open. I get a call from the White House saying, you know, President Clinton's going to be in Australia and he would really love to have a game of golf with you. So the first person I called was President Bush 41. I said, Mr. President, I, I just had a call from the White House and, uh, you know, I, I really don't agree with, um, I'm not a Democrat, I'm a Republican, and I don't agree with you know, some of the the uh, decisions and, and where President Clinton is taking the country and I, he's asked me to play golf with him and I really don't want to play with him. And President Bush says to me, Greg, he said, just respect the position of the President of the United States. You play golf with President Clinton. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. I said, yes, sir. So boom, it all happened, right? <laughs> I play golf, go out to New South Wales and meet him. He's on the tee waiting. And he, we take off, the whole golf course is closed down except for the Secret Service and the, the cat team are out there and, and I've got my caddy, Tony Navarro, with me and we just take off. And we're playing golf, shooting the breeze, you know, just like you would any other thing. And, and uh, Air Force One sitting there and you know, <laughs> Hillary Clinton sitting on the plane waiting, waiting, waiting. And it, I only thought we were only going to play about six or eight holes. Well, lo and behold, we make the turn and he wants to keep going. And Air Force One is still sitting there, and Hillary's ready to go, and we just keep going. And we get around to the 16th hole, it's getting dark now, right? And we just uh, having, I'm having one of the funnest days I've ever had on the golf course, because now it's not the President of the United States, now it's just Bill Clinton. And I looked at my caddy and I said, can you believe, Tony Navarro, I said, can you believe we're doing this right now with the President of the United States? He goes, well, let's say what he said, but anyway, we chuckled away and we finish. And um, I said to him, I was open to him. I said, Mr. President, I got to tell you one thing. I said, uh, you have changed my attitude and philosophy about how I approach people from now on. Hmm. And I was open and honest to him. I said, I had prejudged you. I said, I had prejudged you on your um, political viewpoints and not you as a person. And I said, it taught me a huge lesson. Never prejudge anybody on anybody else's opinion. And we've stayed best friends ever since. What were you thinking when he was famously taken away from your house in an ambulance? <laughs> um, the sitting like was, president. Yeah, it was just a, was just a shock, really, quite honestly. Um, you know, when he got his heel caught and fell down the stairs. And uh, I mean, I've had three knee surgeries because he landed on my knee. So. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, I had to catch him, so. And, uh, you know, so he fell on my knee and, and my knee had buckled under and I couldn't move because we didn't know what was wrong with him. And so his entire weight was on my knee and it just, but took one for the team. <laughs> and you didn't want to move because... Well, I couldn't, the, okay, I couldn't, you know, it. and uh, yeah, he's down, he can't move, he's, he's hurt, you know, he's in a lot of pain. And now all of a sudden, in a matter of seconds, we're surrounded by the team and uh, the doctor comes running down and trying to make a quick assessment what, what was going on. You've obviously have and continue to have a fascinating life and have a lot of great stories. It's really been a treat. Thank you very much. Thank you for very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.